You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, politics editor for The Griot and associate professor of political science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of The Blackest Questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about Black history, past and present. So here's how this works. We have five rounds of questions about us. Black history, the entire diaspora, current events, you name it. And with each round, the questions get a little tougher, and the guest has 10 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they'll receive one symbolic black fist, and they'll hear this. And if they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we still love them anyway. And after the five questions, there'll be a black bonus round at the end just for fun. And I like to call it Black Lightning. So our guest for this episode is writer, professor, radio host, and political commentator, Dr. Melissa Harris-Perry. Melissa Harris-Perry is the Maya Angelou Presidential Chair and Professor in the Department of Politics and International Affairs in the Department of Women and Gender and Sexuality Studies at Wake Forest University. She's the founder and president of the Anna Julia Cooper Center and a longtime columnist and contributor to The Nation. She's also the host of The Takeaway on public radio. And from 2012 to 2016, you may remember she hosted the television show, The Melissa Harris Perry Show, on weekend mornings on MSNBC and was awarded the Hillman Prize for broadcast journalism. She pens regular columns for Essence and the Nation and served as editor-at-large for Elle.com and Zora, a medium publication for women of color. I am so honored to welcome Melissa to The Blackest Questions. Thank you so much for joining me. There's no way I understood what this was. <laughs> I should definitely not have said yes to this, but this is going to be fun. And, you know, because you've been a mentor and a friend for so long. And, you know, part of my political science foundation is because of you. But, you know, we like to do interesting things. That's what I learned from you. And so when the Grio approached me and said, you know, there are a lot of podcasts out there. There are a lot of good podcasts out there. Let's try and add to the bunch. But this it's a little bit of a game show and it <laughs> no way I understood that but okay here we and are we're here we here. are and we're gonna have fun because my argument is thus black history is American history and there's so much about our history that a we don't know but other folks don't know so this is an opportunity for us to have some fun ask some questions and educate the public while we're learning a little bit more about my fabulous guest Dr. Melissa Harris-Perry and I wanted you to tell me a little bit more though about the Anna Julia Cooper Center, um, because I think a lot of folks know who Maya Angelou is, and you're the Maya Angelou chair at Wake, at Wake Forest, but a lot of people don't know who Anna Julia Cooper is. So could you walk us through who she was? I think the easiest way to describe who Anna Julia Cooper is, who she was, is she is the girl W.E.B. Du Bois. She's the woman W.E.B. Du Bois. That's not quite right. There's lots of ways that's wrong, but I do think it kind of helps people to situate sort of who she is. Um, I think the key things to know about Anna Julia Cooper is that she was writing, thinking, speaking, and contributing to the Black public sphere during the same time that we often think of as like the Booker T. Washington W.E.B. Du Bois de debate. And when we talk about that so-called debate as though it's just between these two, you know, to, to be fair, two truly great male thinkers. We often leave out people like Ida B. Wells and Anna Julia Cooper. Anna Julia Cooper was an educator. She was born into um, the system of slavery here in North Carolina, where I live, um, but then grew up um, into uh, the period, the a period of 
immediate post-emancipation. Mm. She became an educator and taught at the M Street School in D.C. So we claim her a little bit in North Carolina. D.C. definitely claims her. But she was when I say that she was the Du Bois, she believed that so-called ordinary young Black folk who others thought weren't capable of intellectual, philosophical, theoretical, scholarly engagement. She believed that they were, and she educated them towards that. Um, but like many women who are great, she was actually pushed out of her role of leadership um, and took the moment of being pushed out of leadership. She actually went over to Paris and wrote a dissertation in French at the Sorbonne, become one of the first Black women uh, to receive and earn a PhD. She ultimately ended up coming back. Um, to um, to DC and to the M Street School, but um, you know the center um, down here in North Carolina was originally affiliated with Wake Forest University. Like Anna Julia Cooper, I was pushed out of campus at one point under um, uh, our previous provost, but we continue to exist as a independent center that convenes and brings together and amplifies, um, particularly girls and women of color in the academy. Absolutely. I know quite a few people have uh, passed through the Anna Julia Cooper Center. And so this is a long legacy of you supporting and uplifting Black women, present company included. Um, okay, so I'm super excited to have you here. Are we ready to play the Blackest Question? I guess so. <laughs> Don't be nervous. Okay, question number one. And they start off somewhat easy and they get a little more difficult. Okay. <laughs> question number one, known for this famous quote, quote, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Who said this quote? Was that Dr. Angelo? It absolutely was. Born April 4th, 1928, Marguerite Ann Johnson, known to the world as Maya Angelou, was born in St. Louis, Missouri. A poet, dancer, singer, activist, and scholar, Maya Angelou was a world-famous author. She's best known for her unique and pioneering autobiographical writing style. She's perhaps most best known for a best-selling, award-winning autobiographical book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. I think a lot of us read that in middle school and high school about her upbringing in the South. And this book is a testament to the need for the resilience in the face of discrimination and never hesitant to speak her mind like someone else I know. Angelou passionately defended the rights of women, young people, and the ignored. She effort effortlessly traversed the worlds of literature and activism, becoming a confidant to the original civil rights leaders, their successors, and current and future generations. Maya Angelou died May 28th, 2014 at the age of 1986. So we know that you are the Maya Angelou presidential chair at Wake Forest uh, in the Department of Politics and International Affairs. How did that come to be? And tell us a little bit more about your relationship with Maya Angelou and this, and this chair. Yeah, it's, it's how I knew it was her. I was like, I'm pretty sure that was her because the like, do better sounds like a very Dr. Angela thing to say. <laughs> Come on now, do better. But also a little bit of grace and forgiveness that, you know, you don't do better until you know better. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Angela was a professor here at Wake Forest University from the late 1980s until she passed in 2014. Um, I came through Wake Forest as an undergraduate student. I was a student here from 1990 to 1994. I took courses with Dr. Angelo and was actually her student assistant. Um, I was her uh, student assistant. It's a bit of a 
bizarro story about how that all happened. Basically, I was pledging my sorority, Delta Sigma Theta, Sorority Incorporated, in the spring of 1992, so walking around on campus, maybe not wearing sufficient clothing. We won't talk about why, but we like wearing, right, you know. You this for the young. <laughs> you know, I was wearing a t-shirt in, you know, December and January, um, got um, bronchitis, um, uh, had a, a treatment that ended up causing a systemic allergic reaction and went to drop all my classes. So here I am like 17 years old and I am standing flat-footed telling Maya Angelo that I'm dropping her class. And the appropriate response to that should have been like, bye, bye little right. Melissa Harris. Right. Um, but instead her response to me was, aren't you a scholarship student? How are you going to keep your scholarship if you drop your classes. Um, and she invited me to come that summer to go to summer school and to work um, for her. So I was working for her um, that summer and then into the fall, which for folks who know, fall of 1992 is when Bill Clinton won the US presidency, mm -hmm. which is whatever. But what's important to know is that then in January of 1993, Maya Angelou gave the inaugural poem on the pulse of morning. Uh, and I was the person answering her fan mail at the time. So I had this opportunity to experience um, her world-changing power um, through her words. Um, so when I came back, um, I accepted an offer to come back to Wake Forest as a faculty member. I graduated in 94, went off, did my other academic life. Um, and then I made a decision to come back and I was um, slated to start July 1st, 19, excuse me, July 1st, 2014. And Dr. Angelo died. In May of right. 2014. And Did it feel like a true passing of the baton? You know, I was so angry at first because a lot of why I wanted to come back was um, I was at this stage in my career. I was about halfway through, um, I didn't know at the time, but halfway through uh, hosting MHP show. I felt a little lost. I really felt like I needed my mentor again. I was coming back because she felt so full of life. And I thought this is a good time to come back and experience that. Uh, and instead, in true Dr. Angelo's style, she stepped aside and was like, no, girl, you have to figure this out for mm -hmm. yourself. Right. Um, so it did and it didn't. I am definitely not Maya Angelo <laughs> in so many ways. She was much more gracious than I am. Cursed, <laughs> cursed a lot less in public space. Um, but, um, but, you know, she did give me all the tools I needed and it was right to come back at that time. And so the joy is that I carry her name um, in mm -hmm. my title. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting that you say tools, because when I think of you and political science, and you've been such a mentor to me and so many others, I think that is the, you know, and I had a dinner the other night with another mentor and friend of both of ours, Jane John. Um, you know, I think it, it's one of those, those pieces where as, as I try and be a mentor, what you can give people are the tools and what they decide to build with it. You just have to kind of let them go and, and be out there and do it. And let them stumble sometimes and, you know, hit their thumb and, and other times just see what beautiful monuments they can, they can build. When you're, when you're sort of in these kind of cloudy phases, uh, what Maya Angelou book or poem do you pick up for inspiration or a little bit of a flashlight in the storm? I think it depends. Um, you know, I've, I've read many, many pieces of her work um, sort of multiple times, but I'll say in, in a funny way, it's less her writing, which I, always discover something new when I go back to mm -hmm. especially Cage Bird. Like as as powerful as there are these sort of particular moments in Cage Bird, like I'll forget others. Um so right now I've been spending a lot of time in Cage Bird in um the section where she is living with her uh, grandmother, who, you know, I read it and read it and read it, but 
the idea that Annie Henderson actually owned that land mm -hmm. in um, in Arkansas and stamps, I had not fully connected to, but now I'm doing work around land and farming and agriculture yeah. and black women. So I, every time I come back to her, I find something new. But what I'll say is it's more that as her student, she taught us in a way that I think of almost as like an Angelo catechism. There were things that she repeated over and over again. And I think any Wake Forest student who took her classes in the 90s and probably right up until her passing will tell you this. But one of the, um, I, I think there are two I come back to often. One is um, that courage is the most important virtue because without mm. courage, you cannot practice any other virtue consistently. You can be mm. kind, but you can't be consistently kind. You can be honest, but you can't be consistently honest. So any virtue, any good that you want to do in the world will require your courage in order to do it consistently. So I often remind myself that doing the scary thing is necessary to practice mm -hmm. the, the courage muscle. Um, and the other one is, and this one can be hard, especially in this environment, just to say to us, and this is drawing on other Western and Eastern philosophers, um, that I am human and therefore nothing human can be alien to me. And um, I think for me, the, the, the power of this in particular was, um, you know, I, you'll hear often now, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Mm -hmm. And she would tell us exactly the opposite. She was like, if any human did it, like, like um, the, the great uh, sort of contribution of black folks was that we often did things we'd never seen before. Right. And Absolutely. that sitting around waiting for a role model is that, that whatever greatness there is, you are capable of that greatness. But the warning is also whatever horror there is, whatever mm -hmm. evil, whatever cruelty, you are also capable of that. So this is a woman who was raped as a child, like as a, as a baby girl, right? As like an mm -hmm. eight-year-old. Mm -hmm. And she says, there are no monsters. There are only humans. And so all of us have within us the power of greatness and of horror and it's a question of what you nurture and lean into because you are mm -hmm. human and therefore nothing human can be alien to you. So you're not allowed to call people animals. You're not allowed to call people monsters. Everyone is human. And so you got to check in on yourself. Am I leaning into the part of me that is monstrous or great? Um, and so I come back to that a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think about that, you know, when we we write about and, and discuss uh U.S. chattel slavery, and those people weren't extraordinary. They were behaving as American citizens uh, in some of the horrific things that they did, and and some of the courageous people, black and white, uh, who helped emancipate us uh, in so many different ways were were just human beings, and they weren't superheroes either. And just acting on your first part, which is the courage uh, to do what is right, uh, even in the the face of extreme odds. Ah. Uh, I love speaking to you. We're going to take just a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to finish my conversation with Melissa Harris Perry as we play The Blackest Questions. Okay, we're back. Melissa, are you ready for question number two? Okay. You're killing the game so far, so let's do it. Which American city campus saw the origins of an African-American studies program originally called the Black Studies Department and is now known as the Africana Studies Department. Was that UC Irvine? Close. San Francisco College, which is now known as San Francisco State University. So you're on the right coast. 
And it's the first Black Studies department was started at San Francisco State College in 1968. Nathan Hare, a professor at San Francisco State University, founded the first Black Studies program, which a year later became a full-fledged department. Uh, Nathan Hare was widely regarded as the father of Black Studies. He was born in Slick, Oklahoma on April 9th, 1933. And African-American studies, also known as Black studies, is an inter-multidisciplinary field that analyzes and treats the past and present culture, achievements, characteristics, and issues of the people of African descent in North America, the diaspora, and Africa. So you were on the right coast. Um, but as we think about, you know, the Bay Area and all the contributions, I sometimes, you know, I got to admit, Melissa, I'm a Northeastern girl. And so I, I think sometimes even, you know, the South, I can get a little wonky and, you know, have amnesia as all the greatness that is in the South. But I will say, I definitely have blinders when it comes to the contributions of our brothers and sisters west of the Rockies. I got to say it. And I'm, yeah, I'm trying to work I don't on really, it. I don't really mess with Black folks from California, except like three of them. Like, like one of my favorite humans on the entire planet is Alicia Garza, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And Alicia is so many things that I normally don't truck with. Like I really don't usually mess with Capricorns. I usually don't really like hang out with people from, you know, from the Bay. I'm just not really for those people. Not that I'm against them, but I'm right. just like culturally, right. we just don't buy. But I love that woman profoundly. So, you know, every once in a while. Um, but you know, the reason I know that and the reason I'm embarrassed to, to have missed which California campus it was is because I teach um, Martha Biondi's um, The Black Revolution on campus. Mm -hmm. I still teach that in my Black Lives Matter class. Um, and and so I, I do, I feel like I should call Martha and say, I'm sorry, because I, I teach her book and yet somehow screwed up my California campus. But I'm really a Southerner. Like I know you're a Northeast mm -hmm. girl, me, I'm a Southerner. So if you ask me where something happened, I'm like, North Carolina. Birmingham, right. <laughs> Occasionally, I will acknowledge that something happened in Atlanta, but I try not to think about it right. too much. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and when I thought about, let's just say, because I want to get to your lesson plan in a second, but when, you know, when I thought about, say, someone like Kamala Harris coming from, you know, California, as a Democratic Party, we haven't seen candidates for the presidency and vice presidency come from west of the Rockies. So even that idea of democratic leadership coming from the West Coast, because, you know, Republicans have had Nixon, they've had Reagan, but, you know, we as a party don't really mess with West Coast folks at our leadership anyway. I know she spent some time on the East Coast, but I do think, I just feel like Black people on the West Coast, and I know our listeners are going to be like, wait, what? But I feel like Black people on the West Coast just feel like different Black people. They feel like they're from a different country than, than Black Americans on the, the East Coast. Because East Coast and Southerners have so many shared um, relatives and experiences. You know, there's so many people from New York who had to go down South every summer. You know, I had, my, my people are from Florida, originally from Tennessee. So, you know, I feel this shared connection between the Northeast and the South. But when I think about West Coast Black folks, I'm like, oh, those are like distant, distant cousins from like Mars. <laughs> Look, I ain't gonna say too much on the vice president. I'm gonna just let that one. We're gonna keep it trucking. I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna keep moving around. Just, I can't, cause yes. whatever. That's, okay. that's a, that's a different podcast episode. That is but a I will, different I, podcast episode, but, but I will say the president Obama was actually from Hawaii. 
And that as much as he talked the narrative of being a skinny kid from the South side, he was not a skinny kid no, from the South not. side. Michelle Obama is a skinny, is the kid, skinny from the kid from the South side. But Barack Obama is actually from the West West, like way out West. You are not like from like continental the US. Pacific Ocean. <laughs> you are not from the continental US. You are not from the 48 contiguous. So here we are. That's um, right. So he's West West. <laughs> yes. I mean, as I work on this book project, you know, about Barbara Jordan and Fannie Lou Hamer and Stacey Abrams, you know, and thinking about Black women in the U.S. South, you know, it is not lost on me that the Black president that we've had is from Hawaii and the Black vice president is from California. Neither one of them are Black Americans. You know, both of them have one parent who is not African-American or who is not Black, and yeah. neither one of them have African-American parents yeah. who are descendants of U.S. chattel slavery. All these things, you know, and I, by no means am I su supporting Eidos and, you know, their sort of anti-Black immigrant uh, shenanigans. However, I will say that there is something about Black American identity that I'm really interested in, uh, as, as in Black ethnics, but I am interested in kind of, you know, the original sin of America and how we still grapple with it in the 21st century. And look, I will say, it's funny, as you started talking, I was like, oh, actually, there is a whole crew of Black West Coast folks who I do adore, and they all hold office in Congress. So like, right. everybody loving Auntie Maxine Waters. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, our girl, the first woman to hold the mayorality in the city of Los Angeles right. is just bringing it all. Barbara Lee is like life and joy and light and goodness. So I probably overstated. I think maybe what I realized I just said when I was talking about not messing with Black folks from the West Coast is that not really a West Coast rap girl. Like I, I think that's it is like for me, Dre and Snoop and there's like, okay, whatever, but I don't love, love them now. But then there's Kendrick. I was, and I will Ooh. say, no, I think, I'm not a Kendrick girl, but I do like Too Short. But I'm well, old. and I still think Snoop's first album was one of the greatest. It's in my top ten, and I like Snoop now. I like, I like the version of, I like grown up version of Snoop. You like Grandpa I like, Snoop? I like Grandpa <laughs> Snoop, who's like, I'm about to live. I'm trying to live. I'm trying to live. <laughs> like, listen, I'm gonna shill any product. You want me to shill these hair ties and bonnets? I'll do it. Dog food, cat food, let's do it. Like, he's just like, I'm out I here. I appreciate Grandpa Snoop. I'm for him. Yeah. <laughs> I realized that there actually, there is a, there's a tradition of, of Black political leaders, particularly congressional leaders um, from, from Cali, who I, who I do have um, like serious, you know, love for. So Karen Bath, Barbara Lee, Maxine mm -hmm. Waters, they'd be all be at the top. Well, I have all these other questions for you, but I do want to stick to Karen Bass for a second because I am, ugh, I'm so excited. Uh, she did that. She did that. And you know, what's interesting is, and I do want to get your thoughts on this. So when she's sworn in, in the four largest American cities, we will have black leaders, two black women, two black men. So we've got Mayor Adams in New York City. We will have Karen Bass in LA. Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, and Sylvester Turner in Houston, all of whom are the second Black electeds in their respective cities. But I think they're, they're all going to represent very different Black leadership styles. And as someone who lives in New York uh, with Eric Adams, who, you know, to be fair, it hasn't even been a year, but he, he slides across the ideological spectrum. He is very comfortable with conservative ideals. He's very comfortable with moderates. And he's also sometimes comfortable with progressive policy positions, depending on, you know, if it suits him at the time. So he's, 
he I, I sort of see him as one of those um you know those ice skaters who in the winter olympics you know you said he's shawnee davis he's like yes mm. that's who i'm thinking of <laughs> so i see him as a shawnee davis type you know with Lori lightfoot you know she comes from i would say a lot of people kind of put her in that kind of like kamala harris bucket of female mm. leadership um you know a little draconian sometimes when it comes to past policies practices and statements hmm. uh, sylvester turner seems a little different i don't really know as much about him and houston is the only southern of the four yeah. and then karen bass i think you know in her role as a member of congress it's going to be very different than someone who's a leader of a city an executive of the city we sort of haven't seen that she's done amazing work on the continent of Africa and her leadership with the CBC. But, you know, as what, who said it, you know, LBJ, my favorite president always said, you know, when he was dealing with the civil rights movement in Vietnam and like the world was on fire and the United States was on fire. And he's like, hey, it could be worse. I could be mayor, right? And we know that the job of a mayor is so hard and especially dealing with the white press in your city and your budget that's tied to uh, your state budget and the federal government. Sometimes you're dealing with a state house that, that isn't very supportive. Even if they're of the same party, they don't really like the major city and their stakes. They feel like we suck all the resources as New Yorkers or Chicagoans or folks from LA. So what are you going to be looking at, not just with Karen Bass, but with these four Black leaders uh, of these four major cities, because I'm really still kind of grappling uh, with the descriptive versus substantive representation that we're about to see. You know, are we really going to see changes in these cities, even though we've got four Black leaders of the four largest cities in the country? Look, I mean, you're a political scientist. You know what what this this week on the syllabus on Black mayors, right? You know, the first thing you read on your Black mayors week of your graduate syllabus in political science is you read the hollow prize theory, right? Um, you just taught that this semester. Of course you did. <laughs> but I didn't, because... you know what? But as a side note, Melissa, I never read a single Black scholar on a syllabus my entire two and a half years of coursework in graduate school. I just want to put that out there. Not a single one, not even Michael Dawson. What? Yes. Go ahead. I'm a self-taught black scholar. This is why when I say you've been a mentor, when I talk about people like Dorian Warren or Jane Jun or Mark, the late Mark Sawyer Wait, or Vince Hutchings. Yes. I'm, I'm for our listeners out there, I'm shouting out different black political scientists uh, and, and Jane Jun, honorary black political scientists. Um, not a single African-American Does Jane know scholar. she's honorary Black folk? Yes, she does. I tell her <laughs> that all the time. I <laughs> like, love Jane. Because you've got enough women of color, especially Black women who you've helped in the academy. So yeah, yes. she's she's ours. We're claiming her in the racial draft. <laughs> I don't know if the AAPI community is going to let us right. know. I, I know they're going to fight me on this one, but she's my first pick. <laughs> oh man, I love Jane. Look, I... I'm a little gobsmacked because you're younger than me, Chrissy. And the mm -hmm. idea that you came, I mean, I came through at Duke University at a place. I was the first black woman to, to earn a PhD in that political science department. And they have black folks on the syllabus. So that is, yeah. um, that is malpractice. Mm -hmm. um, but I, but I will say, you know, when I, when I took um, political science as a, as a grad student at Duke, my faculty member uh, with whom I took urban politics was Marion Orr, who is African-American. He's a scholar of urban politics. I remember reading Hollow Prize. And just for folks who are not political scientists, the Hollow Prize is a theory that um, when we first began to see African-American leadership in major cities, which actually began kind of in the 
in the Midwest in, in Gary, Indiana, for example. Um, and so it, not Chicago, but um, many other um, of these large Midwestern cities, and obviously, of course, Detroit, um, that these cities um, sort of threw up um, Black executive leadership at the same time that leading these cities um, was more of a hollow prize, which is to say at the same time in the in the 1970s, early 1980s, as the um, economic base of these cities was hollowing out because of white flight, which lowered the tax um, base, and also because of the changing infrastructure around manufacturing, which meant that many of these cities like lost their major um, mm -hmm corporations, right? So here you're the mayor, but you're the mayor of a city that has less, right? And so what political scientists found was that um, Black mayors made, the, the primary difference they made was symbolic or um, descriptive in terms of representation. They did appoint more Black folks to appointed positions and that more Black folks chose to run for office and more Black voters turned out in cities where there was Black political leadership. But that when it came to a redistribution of municipal goods, that that didn't really happen under Black mayors. That if anything, maybe, maybe fire departments became a little bit more responsive in Black communities, but that basically all of the things that constrained um, a white mayor constrained even more so a Black mayor who had fewer resources. So I think for me, as I'm looking at this, I'm like, well, okay, this isn't the 1980s, right? Um, Los Angeles isn't a city hollowing out, right? It's a city with actually a pretty robust tax base um, and a city that has um, moved from manufacturing into a new sort of era. Same thing with Houston. Um, and, you know, New York, for all of its challenges, ain't a place where people aren't paying taxes. I mean, mm -hmm. That's right. right, there's a tax base. <laughs> Our real estate uh, situation is booming. That's and the right. fact that we have so many universities that are essentially real estate agents that teach kids on the side, we're 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 not going to fall anytime Although soon. Although the you know the problem with that though, I mean, I man, now you just touched on like I've spent all day on this is when when universities who are of course almost always nonprofits mm -hmm. own land, yes. they don't pay taxes on. No, it. they don't know. So they actually right. do hollow out cities. So we can talk about universities and their um, the responsibility they have to the communities who, that they starve to death with their property ownership. That said, um, I will I will be watching to see the ways that the hollow prize either is or not is not enacted. I, I'm sure there's a political scientist somewhere who is going to write um, maybe less about the hollow prize and more about the big ass mess. Can you say ass on real, <laughs> sure. right? Um, all right. Like so, <laughs> you know, the big ass mess. So like, instead of thinking of black mayors as having um, inherited cities that are um, hollow. Instead, they've inherited cities that are a mess. And so who do you, who do you get when something is yeah. a mess? You go get the domestic help. I think the, the other cleanup really, woman, right. The cleanup woman and the cleanup man. I think the really other, really important difference in these cities in Chicago, in New York, in LA and in Houston is that black ain't the only non-white game right. in town. Right. And that the really critical questions I think are, I'm gonna call it the West Wing issue, right? The idea that like Jimmy Smith's becomes the first president of color in the West Wing, yes. right? You get a Latino president before you get a black president um, in sort of Hollywood imagination. And so in a very similar way, I think, and certainly for Karen Bass, this is gonna be the question. And that is, Yes, there's a um, overarching white power structure, but the really big question of the black brown power structure, how a how a mayor 
manages that not only substantively, but also symbolically, mm -hmm. and what that's going to mean for a broader Black politics as it engages a rising Brown politics um, in the U.S. Ah, oh, brilliant. I can't wait to have you back on once we have a little bit more time with Karen Bass as, as mayor and discuss. Okay, so we're going to take a quick commercial break. You're listening to The Blackest Questions. I'm here with Melissa Harris-Perry. Okay, we are back. Melissa, are you ready for question number three? I am. Okay. He's going to be the first Black lawmaker to lead a party in Congress. He recently became the first African-American in a top leadership role in U.S. Congress. Who is he? This would be Representative Hakeem Jeffries of Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn's in the house. So Hakeem Sekou Jeffries is an American politician and attorney who served as the U.S. Representative for New York's 8th Congressional District since 2013. He's a member of the Democratic Party, and he represents a district that covers parts of Eastern Brooklyn and Southwestern Queens in New York City. The House Democratic Caucus elected Representative Hakeem Jeffries to lead their caucus. He ran unopposed for the position of House Democratic leader, and he'll be replacing Representative Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat of California, who announced she would not run for the top leadership post after Democrats lost control of the House in the midterms largely due to the failures in New York State, by the way. But Hakeem Jeffries noted how his confirmation landed on the birthday of Shirley Chisholm, the first Black woman ever elected to Congress. So, Melissa, you know, Hakeem Jeffries, you know, I represent Brooklyn to the fullest. I love Biggie. I was just at the Philharmonic listening to the, the music of Biggie Smalls. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries is a huge Biggie Smalls fan, keeping his legacy alive, which I thoroughly appreciate. But I got a little blowback from some of my dear friends and colleagues in New York when we were talking about the possibility of Hakeem Jeffries uh, just a month ago because everyone's excited. Everyone's excited about Hakeem Jeffries and this new leadership position. He's the first African-American to hold this position. Even though it's minority leadership, we could possibly gain the majority in 2024, depending on how voting goes. I say all that to say, when I was given this, you know, it's Hakeem, yay, dancing in the streets, we get it. I said, I'll get there, but I'm not there. And I will get excited. But what I don't like are coronation. And I felt like this was a coronation. And white folks have coronations all the time. That's great. And I'm not trying to take that away from him because he's African-American. But as a member of the Democratic Party, I don't like when people run unopposed. I think that if I were given an option of Hakeem Jeffries and others, I might come to the conclusion. Now, granted, we're not voting for Hakeem Jeffries. He's, his colleagues are voting for him. But if we were told as voters, as Democratic voters, here's, here are the three or four folks that we're thinking about. I would then look and say, huh, based on their values and policies and length of time and service and what they can do for the Democratic Party, I think I'm going to go with Hakeem. That makes sense to me. And I like the fact that I could sort of see the internal struggles of the party and the conversations they're having. I don't like people presenting me with a unanimous option, especially when it's because of New York that the Democrats have lost control of the House. And so now we've got two Brooklynites, Chuck Schumer, who remains, you know, Senate Majority Leader. Good for Chuck from Brooklyn. We get it. I'm not a fan of Chuck in this particular role, I think that he's not built for this moment. I think he needs to be a little more LBJ, but that's just me as a political scientist and a voter of New York State. 
But I don't like when people present me with one option and they just say, here's the prize. This is the, this is the option. You're going to love it. And it's going to be great. And I just might love it. And I'm sure it will be great. And I'm wishing him the best. And I will support in whatever I, way I can as a democratic voter, but I don't like the process. I think the outcome is fine. I didn't like the process. Am I just being a little too sensitive or do I have a point? Especially since it's basically because of New York that the Democrats didn't have a clean sweep and we have a unified government. We now have divided government, which means the Republicans are gonna take control of the House, dear listeners, and the Democrats will maintain control of the Senate and the presidency for the next two years. So I don't know if you can see I'm kind of light-skinned, so I am blushing a little bit on this one. So I just feel like I have to just tell the truth. So Hakeem Jeffries has a younger brother. His name yes. is Hassan Jeffries. He's yes. a professor of history at Ohio State University. You might notice if you look at his CV that he got his PhD at Duke University in the late 1990s. I kind of was a little bit in love with Hassan Jeffries, oh, 25 years ago. <laughs> I will tell. It's just the two of us talking. <laughs> Hakeem looks a lot like Hassan. And so even though I don't really know Hakeem like that, every time he's on the TV, I have like a little like, ooh, ooh. You're like the 80s sitcom where it's like, ooh. <laughs> it's terrible. I mean, to be clear, this is 20 years before I even like met my husband. He is, Hassan is married with a lovely family. I am married with a lovely family and not just like in a TJ Holmes, Amy Robot kind of way, like like straight up, like really. But it's <laughs> Our just... listeners can't see this, but unfortunately I was drinking water while, Mich- while Melissa said that. And we almost had a situation here on the podcast. <laughs> I mean, you can't make that was choke. Just, I mean, it's really, it's not a thing, but somehow it is. It's just like one of those things where like, you know, you break up with somebody when you're like, whatever, 24, yes. 25, you don't really have to think about them again. And then oh, there they are on TV. Every day. His brother is the speaker of the house and you're a political scientist. Oh. Okay. So let me, I just say all that to say full scale, just those are the words in the world. So I can't really, I don't know. I just think it's great and funny and hilarious. And I just hope basically that Hakeem gives Hassan a really hard time for the rest of their lives as brothers. Cause I think you win the brother war if you get to be the- Right, if you get to be the speaker. <laughs> yeah, if you get to be the speaker someday. Okay, so that's all I'll say about that. Um, on the process piece, I guess, you know, it's funny because this is a critique that I made of the democratic primary process in 2016, very strongly. Um, So I don't like turns, I don't like coronations, and I definitely did not like Hillary Clinton as a nominee. Mm -hmm. And not only did I not like Hillary Clinton as a nominee, to be clear, I don't mean I don't like her as a person. She's a lovely person, actually. I think there's a lot of evidence that she's a really lovely person. I didn't think she was a a strong nominee. And I think that part of how she becomes the nominee and, and not a strong one, or not as strong as I think she might have been, Um, was in fact because there wasn't a kind of robust process. Um, But that for me, feels really different than leadership within the party. So I hear you 100% about as a voter um, wanting to have a say in sort of who's gonna be on your ballot. I'm really, I'm all for the most robust primary system at every level. Um, I don't know that I think that about party leadership. 
um, in part because I think that party, it's, it's kind, of kind of the LBJ thing, right? Like I should think party leadership is about arm wrestling and backdoor dealing and who's good enough to make everybody else sit down and who mm-hmm. knows how to like all those pieces that actually aren't about policy or positions or anything else. They're about raw power. Raw power I, in politics. Right. That I actually won't even like as even as a relatively informed sort of observer, actually don't know, right? It's all those things that are going on inside of any given system. So in a certain way, like, you know, I could, for example, say, well, I'm not a fan of Nancy Pelosi in some ways, but on the other hand, I mean, Sister Pelosi, oh, she you, she knows some about power. Anyone who knows me knows I love Nancy D'Alessandro. <laughs> I love it. I love because, it. Well, you know, Baltimore's she, my favorite city. Well, and she knows what power is. She knows how to wield it. She don't really play when she has it. And so I think for me, when I look at uh, Representative Jeffries, it's less about where he stands on any given issue, which means probably about the median Democrat, maybe a little left to the median Democrat, but um, the median Democrat in the population, um, probably a little to the middle or even right of the median Democrat within the party, hard to say, depending on age. but what it, what does seem clear is at certain point in his career, he decided, oh, I'm not going to be an outsider. I'm going to be an insider. I'm going to wield power. And honestly, I guess when I think about party leadership, I want a power wielder. And so I don't know what the story is back there. Again, it's been a long time since I dated his brother. But I will say that um, th- that alone is, is the thing that makes me feel fine. I mean, excited. I don't know if I've ever been excited about a leader. But the, the final thing, though, I'll say is I'm not sure I'd put it on New York. Um, the loss of mm. the the leader, I mean, of the of the majority. I mean, I just, I, I you know, perhaps because I live in a gerrymandered district, <laughs> and um, <laughs> you know, and as a North Carolinian, watching um, these states who who won additional seats because of growing black and brown populations, and then sent more Republicans to the House this time. I mean, I, I don't, I sure. New York, but I got to say for me, uh, I'm not so worried about um, New York's representation in the U.S. House. I'm much more worried about the representation of Southern Black and Brown people who, who literally gave these states additional seats after the 2020 census, but then because of redistricting, um, failed to to gain more representation. And 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 that I mean, I I, I live in a in a district um, like. I am represented by Virginia Fox. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if y'all know who Virginia mm-hmm. Fox is, but um, the idea that she is my representative. I mean, I live in a very racially um, uh, uh, and economically diverse community. And the idea that we are represented by Virginia Fox is like indicative of, of how little our vote matters. Right. Um, and then the uh, district that was carved out that was meant to be a predominantly person of color district is represented by Kathy Manning, who is um, a Democrat, but is a white woman with um, very deep pockets who was able to basically come in, split the black vote multiple ways, and then uh, walk away with that um, that Democratic nomination. And, and so, I don't know, I think there's plenty, <laughs> there is plenty to go and look, I would point to Elaine Luria in the um in in Virginia, right? And let me say it this way: there's someone to blame for right. for the House, and 
to the extent that that blame exists in the Democratic Party, I would put it squarely on the shoulders of the DCCC, not Whoa! particularly on New York. Don't even get me started. That's for another podcast again. I basically need like 12 podcasts to, just, to talk about different things at different times. But hopefully we can have you back because, you know, we, we got to go to a quick commercial break. But I do want to do a, like at some point we need to do a deeper dive because, you know, New York lost a seat and that's, you know, tied to the census. Um, but also, you know, we we had a governor's race where Kathy Hochul won, but by 5%. And she ran against a Trump-supporting, election-denying, January 6th-supporting Republican that millions of New Yorkers thought was A-OK. And had he had a few more weeks, I think he could have gained on her. And so- You remember Donald Trump is from New York, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. But I do recall. I do Y'all be acting like we did that. We didn't do that. Yet. <laughs> this guy. Um, okay. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. I'm talking to Dr. Melissa Harris-Perry, friend and mentor, and you're listening to The Blackest Question. Okay, we're back. You're listening to The Blackest Questions. Melissa, are you ready for question number four? Let's do it. This American singer, Academy Award-winning songwriter and actress of African, Cuban, and Puerto Rican descent was cast at age 17 in the film Sparkle, becoming the film's breakout star and went on to act in films such as Fame. Who was she? Mm, Irene Cara. I know, the late Irene Cara. I hate to say it that way. The late Irene Cara. Born March 18, 1959 in New York City, more specifically in the Bronx. And she died November 26, 2022. And before landing an Oscar and Grammy Award for her work on the film Flashdance, Cara laid the foundation for her career on the 1970s children's show, The Electric Company. Oh, I remember that show. Her Broadway debut came in the original 1968 production of Maggie Flynn, where she appeared alongside Stephanie Mills. Sparkle was Kara's breakout movie role when she played the title character in the 1976 film. In 1980, she received her first award nominations for her voice and acting as striving dancer Coco Hernandez in Alan Parker's 1980 movie Fame alongside co-star Debbie Allen. And her performance and singing led to, her, to a Grammy nomination for Best New Artist and a nod for Best Pop Vocal Performance for the title song. And three years after Fame, Kara got her next go-to at the awards cycle as the voice behind the hit from the 1983 Flashdance starring Jennifer Beals. And Kara won the Academy Award for Flashdance, What a Feeling, along with songwriters Georgia Moroder and Keith Forsey for Best Original Song. And it also won two Grammy Awards. So Fame and Flashdance, What a Feeling spent six weeks at number one. And Kara was behind some of the most joyful, high-energy pop anthems of the 1980s. And so this, you know... Melissa, this uh, recent passing feels, um, I don't know if we're just getting older or what, but this one hurt as far as being kind of a young black woman. I remember, and, and I was young when, you know, sort of fame and flash dance were huge, but I definitely remember them in like a, a DNA level, you know, part of my musical upbringing, you know, when they talk about imprinted memories, that's an imprinted memory. She is an imprinted memory. And I just wanted to hear your reflection uh, on Irene Cara. I usually, you know, I haven't read so many of the tributes thus far. Yeah. Um, but I think that what was also with, it brings up an interesting set of conversations is because she also represented the diaspora. And I think for a lot of us, it was the first time we're looking at a Black girl who may or may not look like us, but we knew she was ours. 
but we also knew that there was something that bound us to her and some other people in a way that maybe as young black girls, we couldn't necessarily identify, but we still knew that she was with us. Does that make sense? I do. I mean, it does. I, I, so many things to say about her. Um, yes. The binding to us also though, I, I was old enough again, I'm a bit older than you, um, maybe a lot older, but I'm older. Um, but I also just remember being so jealous of her hair mm-hmm. and like, why does her hair do that? My hair won't do that. Um, and it was before there were a lot of public conversations about black girl hair. We were having there were always a lot of private conversations about black girl hair. We were having yes. them. Um, but I do remember um, feeling like, oh man, I wish I could do that. Mine hair did not do that. Um, but here's what I remember most. And it's it's an odd kind of memory around, um, uh, around race in this sense. So um, I've, I'm the youngest of five siblings, but the sister closest to me in age is um, about six years older than I am. And, um, and, and she is now a lawyer. She's been a public defender in the San Francisco public defender's office for like more than 25 years. She's very accomplished and extraordinary and wonderful. Um, before becoming an attorney though, my sister was an extremely accomplished dancer. Um, got her undergraduate degree in dance, danced with a professional company, danced with Hubbard Street, just even now has the best legs in the courtroom always. Um, and she went to high school at the Duke Ellington School of the Arts in Washington, DC. Now I grew up in Virginia, but what happened was we saw fame. Like we mm-hmm. we saw the film Fame. I was still relatively young, but my sister was, I think maybe a first year high school student. And um, she was like, wait a minute, this exists. And then it turned out it didn't exist just in New York. It also, there was a version in DC, which was, within a bus trip of our house. And she literally took the bus up, tried out for the Duke Ellington school, and then left home at 16 and went to high school at the School of the Arts. It, it literally, like Irene Cara literally changed my household, changed my family. And I do have to say one more thing though. So this is my sister in my big crazy family who's white. And I don't mean she looks white. I mean, her mom and her dad are white. My mother's white, my father's black, but both her mother and her father are white. And yet she also saw herself in Irene Cara. And and let me tell you, in 19, she went to Duke Ellington between 1981 and 1985. And I think she she might've been the only white girl. (laughs) I mean, I'm pretty sure they called her the vanilla child the whole time she was there. Um, But those, those, those years at Duke Ellington shaped who she was, shaped who we were, like we would go up for their performances. Mm-hmm. But at all points, it was always like chasing Coco. It was like this vision that she received from that film, from from what was possible and what really fed her soul as an artist. And I think for me that that is part of why it was a tough loss is that there was this black girl piece, but I am nobody's artist. Right. My sister, who's the white girl, vibed on the artist piece. And the idea that she was so extraordinarily transcendent, that she was all of those things to both of us, I think is indicative of, of just how powerful she is. Yeah, I, you know, and I danced a little when I was a kid, by no means was I, you know, touring in companies, but I do think that my early memory was a feeling of freedom 
when she danced. And I mean, I think maybe that's why I still have a special place in my heart for Debbie Allen, even though, you know, Debbie Allen played like the harsh, you know, I just feel like she always had a stick and she was slamming it on the ground, you know, five, six, seven, eight. But like, I still see Debbie Allen and I'm like, whoo, you know, Chrissy, oh, yes. sit up straight, yes. you know, like be on beat, like Debbie Allen's going to get you. But I think that these early memories of these women of color who are just so strong and elegant, but there's, and maybe this is a larger conversation about dance. And this is, I still think about this with Maya Angelou. I know that people think about her as a scholar and a poet. And so many of us are introduced to her, obviously through I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings and her poetry and On the Pulse of Morning. Yes, but I'll never forget the first time I saw that picture of her in some sort of dance number. Yes. And she's with like um, Ashford and Simpson. And I'm like, what is happening to my mind? And it's like, oh yeah, my Angela was the dancer. I think and I those in, were her homies. Ashford yeah, and Simpson homies, were her homies. homies forever. Homies, like, homies. Yes, all And the I way. think when I saw her legs and I was like, oh, this kind of freedom, yeah. this like intellectual freedom that I feel from Maya Angelou, I'm now seeing in a physical photograph of her in this outfit and these legs, these legs. I mean, it's like, it's, it's always legs, right? It's always the legs. And I, was, I think that, I've always connected dance to a freedom. I mean, this is why I go see Alvin Ailey every, you know, holiday. This is why I'm a huge supporter of the Dance Theater of Harlem. There is something about watching our bodies be free. And I think that's maybe what I miss so much about Irene Cara in this moment. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a, you know, I, I just, um, for the takeaway, I just recently talked with, um, Misty Copeland, um, about her new book, which is about her mentor, um, who sort of like paved the way, um, in, in classical. And in so many ways, um, we experience it right from an audience perspective as the freedom, right. Almost as flight as effortlessness. But of course we know that it is, it is the opposite of that, right. That it is grueling. It is painful. The tax that it takes on your body, um, you know, which maybe in many ways is also just indicative of the whole sort of um, performative aspect of Black mm -hmm. girlhood, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, I'm sure people experience it, you know, with you as um, professor and as media host and as commentator, and they think, oh, like, you just go and you just like effortlessness and it's effortless, right? But it's not, right? Like your feet hurt in the toe shoe of the, <laughs> of the scholarly world right. in which you know or the sleepless yeah. nights worried about our democracy all oh all you, that you be staying up thinking about ma'am i'm just like what is happening to this country it's like oh the country's this country's acting country the same way when chris when chris rock said that tiger with tiger i'm like america's acting america what is happening? yeah don't let it keep you up at night sis like uh, I, I i have a whole sleep hygiene regimen just to try and cleanse the spirit yeah, uh, I was no, like, this no. country, this country will not take me out. Yeah, there's a lot of things you should stay up late at night for and worrying about American <laughs> democracy. Cannot, there's plenty of time during the day to worry about American democracy. Every now and again, it gets me, though. I got to be honest. OK, we're going to take a quick break. Melissa Harris Perry is killing the game here today on The Blackest Questions. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer. I'm here with my dear friend, Dr. Melissa Harris-Perry. Melissa, are you ready for question number five? You're on a roll. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Okay. This Harvard graduate, author, and historian 
founded the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, and is credited for what is now called Black History Month. Who was he? Carter G. Woodson? Carter G. Woodson! Story of Black History Month begins in Chicago. During the summer of 1915, an alumnus of the University of Chicago with many friends in the city, Carter G. Woodson traveled from Washington, D.C. to participate in a national celebration of the 50th anniversary of emancipation sponsored by the state of Illinois. And thousands of African-Americans traveled from across the country to see exhibits highlighting the progress their people had made since the destruction of slavery. And in February 1926, he launched the celebration of a historic week dedicated to teaching the cultural significance of the history of Black Americans. Black History Month, also known as African American History Month, celebrates the history of the diaspora or migration of African people and groups from across the globe. And while that looks different in each culture today, to simplify it, it's a way of celebrating accomplishments and positive contributions to society made by people who've migrated from or descended from Africa. And though its roots are from the United States, and that's what we'll be focusing on today, it's also observed in Canada, the United Kingdom, Germany, and the Netherlands. So it moved from a week to a month. Now, Melissa, do you do anything special for Black History Month? Girl, yes. <laughs> Listen, let our listeners know, what do you do? I make tuition for my children by giving lectures around the country. Keeping it 100. It's like, what do you mean? Like <laughs> that is, yes, that is the accurate response. Basically, January, mid-January, thank you, Dr. King, for being born after the Christmas holiday when the bills are due right through February is when mama pays tuition on the road. Mm -hmm. That is what mama does for Black History Month. Look, you know, I, you can't take it. I mean, I've, I've heard you say this before and, uh, and I love it because I do it as well. You know, everything is Black History Month for me. So, you, you know, you can't take intro American Gov with Christina Greer and not get it, you know, from yes. a Black, right, Black American history perspective. And the same thing for me, right? I love to, uh, for example, like next semester, uh, excuse me. Uh, so for example, like in the spring semester, um, I'll be teaching a course called um, First Ladies, America's First Ladies. And, you know, I think the word may be out now, but but often what will happen is like, as I like to say, many of my tea drinking girls on campus will show up, you know, young women who are maybe, um, you know, majors in art history, or maybe they're majors in the business school. And they're like, oh, this is gonna be fun. We're gonna come learn about the First Ladies. And then boom, they're in class with me and we're reading about Sally Hemings and we're like doing the whole thing. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, on the one hand, no, I don't do anything special in that I, you know, I'm a scholar who is always thinking about these questions. Um, and I am, I'm joking, but only a little bit about the resource question. I, I really do give a lot of public lectures during that time, but that is maybe indicative of kind of how our institutions work, right? Mm -hmm. That, because um, I will point out that I am also appointed in the um, Department of Gender um, women, gender, and sexuality studies. And I don't give a lot of lectures in March, despite the fact that I absolutely could, but I often fall off the radar of institutions come women's history month. Um, uh, but, you know, people think of you as, you know, black scholar and therefore, um, bring you out to, to give lectures during, during February. So I never, I'm never mad at it, not only because of the personal resource piece, but, because really any time you have a platform, whether it is a class of, you know, 21st year students or whether it's a 
hour and a half lecture on another campus, um, or whether it is a daily radio show, whenever you have a platform, you know, for me, I see it as a opportunity to engage in, you know, the classroom work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, everything we do is sprinkled <laughs> and laid in a foundation of Black history. You know, what I've started to do is just really think about February and March as Black Women's History Months, mm -hmm. plural. Mm -hmm. And so I've just been trying to learn a lot more about Black people. You know, just, I mean, we do this all the time, but we there's only but so many moments in a day. But for February and March, I've been trying to be a lot more deliberate to learn about Black women in particular for the months of Black History Month and Women's History Month. Because, you know, when you think about someone, you know, we started this conversation with Anna Julia Cooper. I mean, she was never on my radar as a child necessarily. It wasn't until I got older and you hear about, you know, Polly Murray, you know, the great legal scholar and legal mind, you know, Constance Baker Motley, who's, you know, a judge and was the Manhattan Borough president in New York City, you know, before David Dinkins was the Manhattan Borough president and he became uh, the first black mayor of New York City. So you think about these black women, you know, during a very different time uh, who went against incredible odds. And, you know, you and I have been in these institutions for a long time, but these women were in these same institutions with even fewer uh, fewer Black women, Black people, you know, probably no Black instructors, depending on where they went. And so I, I think it's just really important for me to, I'm just trying to be a, a lot more deliberate. So, you know, I joined a Black bank, I donated to an HBCU. There's a whole rubric that I have that for me from Black History Month, it's like, okay, Greer, it's time to just make sure, you know, as busy as you are, we got to brush up on this blackity blackness. <laughs> do, you, do your listeners know that you actually have multiple of these crazy rubrics that you pass around to your friends <laughs> and family and no, your email you list know. and you make us do all this stuff? I mean, I don't, I don't really know if y'all agree or folks know that Chrissy is like a little like ball of self-improvement. Like, and she'll send you a list like, all right, so this week we're going to get on the Peloton while we learn French so that we can get our Francophone West African context together and we're going to read these four books. And you're like, girl, really? Like this week we're doing that? <laughs> Being listeners. And you know what? And I, I'll, I'll, I'll post it for our listeners to, to check it out. Um, because I've been doing it for years, you know, uh, someone gave it to me almost 20 years ago now, but you know, it's funny. I was just dusting it off so I could get my email ready to send to you and the rest of the gang, but for the listeners who, here's what I do. It's called a year in reflection. So you essentially, you go through each month and you talk about the highlights, uh, that, you know, that you can remember from the months, uh, of the previous year. And then you talk about some highlights from the year, and then some things that you're looking forward to for the next year and what you'll need to do to make that happen. And so when we were in graduate school, you know, there were some dark days. And so it was just like, I don't know what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to getting out of here. But it was just even the practice of writing that out every year. I'm looking forward to getting my PhD. I'm looking forward to getting the hell out of this institution. That actually was a beacon. And then, you know, you're writing the book and then you're trying to get tenure. So there are always these carrots and sticks and mm -hmm. obstacles. But now, you know, I'm looking forward to being more deliberate about spending time with people I love, mm -hmm. you know, being more deliberate about, you know, in we're still in COVID, but like making sure I make my way to get down to North Carolina and like run around with some, some chickens and in nature, you know, you know, I'm a birder, my, my listeners know that I'm a birder, you know, making sure I, I 
you know, sneak away during my lunch break and walk two blocks to Central Park because that's where I am. You know, you're in, in North Carolina. I'm going to come down there with my binoculars and get you into, I'm like slowly but sure, oh, surely converting yeah. all these black women into birding. They're like, girl, let me tell you about this woodpecker outside my office. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm starting a black birding crew. <laughs> Didn't no, even know it. Incredible birding here. And I'm in Winston-Salem. So it's just a short drive up to the, to the mountains and our birding is incredible here plus you know i got 27 chickens they're birds of a different kind but i they're right but they're still backyard. birds nonetheless oh and i do get amazing. in trouble because you know I, i'm a little anti-pigeon but you know real birders say you know it's pigeons only dirty because humans are dirty they're a beautiful bird you know um but uh i you know and there's there are all these debates girl there's so much drama in the bird community you just never believe it like i i feed birds in the winter but not in the summer because you know folks don't believe in there's a big oh, debate yeah. as to you know whether there's or not you should of- even be feeding birds um because they're you know they should learn how to fend for themselves but i'm like it's snowing i should you know i should try all right also <laughs> we destroy their environment so like the fend for themselves while we destroy their environment is a real like it's it's a rough call imperialist sort of worldview yeah yeah so i feed them only when when it's cold cold winter time but hey that's another podcast we'll we'll add that byron allen's gonna be listen this woman has 17 podcasts on the network what is happening okay we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we're gonna play black lightning Okay, we're back. Melissa, before we let you out of here, we have time for our Black bonus round. And this is called what I call Black Lightning. These are just quick answers. Don't overthink it. It comes from the heart. You tell us how you feel, and that's it. It's no right or wrong answer. You ready? Yes. Okay. Favorite Christmas singer? I guess Donny Hathaway. Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, or The Temptations. One of the two. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> do you prefer a white Christmas tree or a green Christmas tree? Oh, I do have both, but I I do have a, the big one in the house is green. I also okay. have a pink one, even though I'm Delta. There's I was about to say, I even wore red earrings just out of solidarity for you today. Um, favorite Christmas movie? Oh, that's easy. It's a wonderful life. It's actually my favorite movie, full stop. It is my favorite movie. It is the only one I have watched one million times. It's a wonderful life. Okay, I gotta come down at some point because I've never seen it. Um okay. Ugly okay. Christmas new, sweater new podcast. Part. <laughs> Another podcast. <laughs> okay. Movies Chrissy hasn't seen, but she should. Um, okay. Ugly quish, Christmas sweater party. Are you in or are you out? Oh, I'm in and in fact, I'm sort of I didn't quite realize we're gonna be on air today. I have like a whole drawer that I can only really wear from Thanksgiving to New Year's. I mean, it's an entire drawer that is exclusively both like black girl Christmas sweaters and and also like slightly raunchy Santa sweaters that say things like, I got hoes in many area codes. And then, and then also ugly Christmas sweaters. I have a real serious Christmas problem. Yes, okay, I'm you're in. in. Do you prefer game night or amusement parks? Ooh. Amusement parks with the kids, game nights with the groans. Okay. If you had to choose The Lion King, the movie or the Broadway play? Oh, the Broadway play. Okay. If you had to choose the original Sparkle or the remake? I can't watch them back to back in a double feature. Okay. The original. Melissa Harris Perry. Thank you for playing the Blackest Questions. You did phenomenally, might I say. (laughs) 
I hope you come back and join us at another time. You've been listening to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer. Thank you all for listening. The show is produced by Sasha Armstrong, Akila Shedrick, Jeffrey Trudeau, and Regina Griffin is our managing editor of podcasts. If you like what you heard, subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And please download the Grio app to listen and watch many more great shows. Have a wonderful one. 